0: Okay, those of you up in the mezzanine, I want to remind you of um, the, uh, the, uh, the hazards of where you are. Nothing from up there needs to ever make its way down here. So just please be careful about that. And um, on the building, just before we get started in the Word in Matthew chapter 10, I want to say uh, the old meeting house God has provided is where we're serving Him now, and we're thrilled with Him for that. And it's a challenge. We're asking everybody to stay and eat together, and um, we're not asking you to suffer downstairs only. So, we're going to allow uh, not children upstairs with food for the fellowship dinner, because otherwise, you will go home. And (laughs) there is no room down there to get together. I hope everybody understands that's an awesome challenge in front of us, and God has the solution to that, but He's not. He's not, like, going to just zap us with the answer. He's making us think it through. On that note, um, this space here is about to change radically, or at least we're planning for it to. We're going to push this whole thing back and get us a couple, maybe three more rows uh, down here so that if you want to be down here at the orchestra level, then you can, and we'll quit wasting space back here. So there's a lot in the works, and I ask your prayers about that, about these efforts Don't be surprised if we invite you in a couple weeks to uh, join us for fellowship outside under a tent because uh, the coffee break is impossible and it's too crowded and I'm not. One solution is just to start being offensive and then you'll leave. But I don't want to do it that way. So come on, I'm teasing. One solution is to reduce the number of people. Um, And um, I don't like that tactic. So what we'll do is we'll put a tent out there and we can fellowship under cover If we need for weather, I'll just be outside as the weather gets nicer. Um, So please turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 10. Speaking of the ministry of the gospel in the time in which we live, that's all this building is. This is a, a means by which we share Christ with the world. In Matthew chapter 10, we're in the study of Jesus' second great discourse, not the kingdom platform now but the great discipleship discourse where he's sending his disciples on their delegation to preach the gospel of the kingdom throughout the uh, lost sheep of the house of Israel. And a challenging passage for many reasons, and the greatest reason is because this is a speech uh, Jesus gave to 12 people to equip them to do a specific task with a specific group of people. And we are not any of us those 12 people, and we are not doing the specific task that he sent them to do. What Jesus sent them to do was restricted only to Israel, for example, and the ministry he was conducting was before his crucifixion and resurrection. It was the offer of the kingdom, and he was telling his people who had been promised the forever kingdom of David. He, as David's greater son, was offering the kingdom to them, and he sent his 12 to go 12. Why were there 12? To go to the 12 tribes of Israel. They're going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to offer the Jewish kingdom to the Jews. And you all know I hope you know that the Jews rejected it. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit when we get to chapter 12, and he's judging them with parables in chapter 13, the great turning point. And that's really the secret to a lot of the questions we have about the Gospel of Matthew. Why aren't we doing the things that are described here? Well, we have a different ministry. We have a different mission. There's sameness about it. We're revealing the Father. There's differences, It's different age, different purpose. We're not offering Israel the kingdom right now. but we are prep- preparing for rulership in the coming kingdom as the body and bride of Christ. So what I'd like to do today in this awesome discourse on discipleship is apply it to us. As we interpret, we'll also apply how do the things Jesus is saying, how do these principles come at us? And I'll, I think I have 10 key principles in Matthew 10 verses 1 through 31 I'd like to do today with the hour and a half we have remaining, I'd like to, to cruise through uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 31. Last time I made a mistake, it never happens, but last time it did. I said, but well, we don't translate. I'm translating every verse of Matthew. I'm just not going through the translation with you slowly. Like I did last time, I did three verses last time. And that would just scratch the surface of those three verses. We could have done three days on those three verses in Matthew 9, 36 through 38. But anyway, that's enough introduction. Let's jump into what Jesus is doing, preparing the disciples for the work of the delegation to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In verse 1 of Matthew 10, you have the summary of the discourse. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This is the summary of the commission discourse, that he's commissioning his disciples. What did he do? He gave them authority over the demons, which I believe is the same as unclean spirits, fallen angels, to cast them out of people that were demon possessed and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This summary ministry to the disciples, I've translated it here for you the way uh, I think it works in a kind of more interlinear direct translation from the majority manuscripts, um, the majority text tradition from which the textus receptus is part. um, I think that uh, it's pretty clear that what Jesus commissioned to do is different than what we have uh, in our instructions when you look at the New Testament. Paul, in his letters, does not give instructions for casting out demons. He doesn't teach how to heal from diseases and sickness. There's a difference and I'll tell you what the difference is. It's really important theologically. Jesus is offering the millennial kingdom. It's a miraculous kingdom. It removes the curse from the earth. It heals the diseases. It is the resurrection. It will be the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the resurrected. It's, it's an amazing, miraculous offer, this coming kingdom that's prophesied. And it isn't just a spiritual thing that by and by up in the sky will be in the kingdom, or now he's in my heart, so that's the kingdom. No, the, the kingdom of the prophets that was offered and promised through all the covenant structures. Abraham and his kids would be in the land forever. Their kid David would rule, and David's greater son would rule on a throne in that land forever. This is a concrete thing, but it's a miraculous and spiritual concrete thing that Jesus is offering. And when he shows up to offer the kingdom, the demons, they're out, out. They don't have anything to do with this kingdom. They're not part of the kingdom. And, and the works of the kingdom include the removal of the curse, like, which has caused death and leprosy and these kinds of things. So I hope you can understand. These works go with the offer of the kingdom that he gave them. And we've read the whole story. Hopefully you've read Matthew. They, they rejected it. They wanted to see the, the spectacle. They wanted to be healed. But they didn't want the words that those miraculous works were testifying to. Because here's the real deal. You know God through what he tells you oh, show me something. You know God through what He tells you. You can't see Him with your eyes. It's not a sensory experience that way. It's a a thought, spiritual heart thing to know God. And He tells you in His Word. That's why the Bible. But I want you to see that there's a principle here from verse 1 that applies to your life and mine, even if I'm not equipped or called to cast out demons or to heal the sick. And I'm not. I can't find it in uh, the subsequent instruction. Even though I don't do these specific tasks, I have tasks that God's given me to do. And you can see here that Jesus had something for them to do and he equipped them to do it. He gave them that, what was necessary. And principle one is God gives us what we need to accomplish his objectives. If he has a job for you to do, be sure you've got what you need to do it. That's a wonderful life principle. And that's exactly what the summary of this message is in this discourse in this teaching that he's given the disciples set them up to do the work if he didn't give them this teaching they wouldn't know what to do they wouldn't know how to support themselves they wouldn't know what their message was they wouldn't know how to deal with people that rejected them they wouldn't know that there was trouble coming and there is but see since he tells them what to expect by this teaching he's equipping them for the task in front of us and i believe the entirety of god's word is that for us and that's why I teach Isaiah verse by verse. I've been challenged for 20 years by people in various quarters that in ministry, not the church family, but in outside the church family, you can't teach Isaiah verse by verse. It won't be edifying to the people is the challenge people have. And my jaw drops and I say the word of God, word for word, given by the, 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 the Lord, the spirit through the, the prophet Isaiah, isn't edifying to God's people word for word? Well, I mean, some of it is, it tells you about Jesus, the Lord Jesus thinks every word of the gospel of of the book of Isaiah, the gospel, the the prophecy of Isaiah, of course it's edifying. But the problem is that we want the Bible to be relevant to us because we have itching ears. And what we don't realize is that we need to, in the spirit of God, become relevant to it, to him. And that's what happens through the word. God gives you what you need to accomplish his objectives. And those of you who've been slogging with me through Isaiah... You know it is edifying. You know that verse by verse through God's word is a meal every single time. God gives us what we need to accomplish his objectives. In Matthew 10 verses 2 through 4, you have the 12 names. The names of the 12 disciples now called apostles. Now the names of the dodeca apostolon dodeca is the Greek word for 12, and apostolon is, alone is the apostolos. This word means those that are sent. And so the disciples, as they've been called, are now called the apostles. I wonder why that is. Why does the writer Matthew, one of these apostles, call them now apostles for the first time? Because the word means to send, to be sent. And Jesus is sending them to go preach in the, um, in the tribes of Israel. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these, and I, you can read it in your English Bible, but I'm going to show you what the Greek uh, names transliterate to, so you can see a little bit more flavor. Everybody's watching the TV and all the different depictions of the Bible. Well, this is a depiction of these people's names uh, in Greek. Now, by the way, I've had a lot of questions about languages, The language they're speaking in Judea is called Aramaic. It's a cousin language to Hebrew. And you can teach a Hebrew person that knows Hebrew, Aramaic in one semester. There are 101 or so verses of Aramaic in the the Old Testament. Out of all the verses of the Old Testament, there's there's an hour's worth of reading um, of Aramaic uh, in Daniel, Ezekiel. They're speaking Aramaic. And so that's a challenge for people because Matthew writes in Greek. Because the New Testament is written in Greek. Listen, the New Testament is inspired by the Holy Spirit. God breathed through the writers of the New Testament in Greek. And the events that happened are depicted by the words. And the way we have access to those events, now watch this, is the words of the scriptures, the text. We keep our finger in the Bible. Hope you understand. It's not that the Bible becomes relevant to me at some point when I feel it. It's that this is God's word, word for word. And it's in Greek. The names of the 12 apostles are these. Petros. That's Peter. And Andreas, which would be Andrew, his brother. Andreas. Ha Adelphos, his brother. Jacob, Jacobos. Whoa, 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 whoa. Jacob, Jacobos. And somehow, we got James out of that name. Your Bible says James, but the Greek says Jacobos. Because in Greek, that's as close as they're going to get to Yaakov, which is the Hebrew. These are Jewish people, Hebrew names, Hebrew slash Aramaic names, Yaakovos, Jacob. Now, the name that you'll have in your Bible is James, and that does sort of disambiguate because nobody in the Old Testament is called James. In the Old Testament, the name is Jacob. In the New Testament, in the English Bible, we named it James. I'm not sure what happened there. I have a theory. It's kind of, it's kind of a joke. There was a fella named James involved with the Bible translation. And I wonder if he got his name in the Bible. I don't know. But anyway, that's, that's, the name is Jacob. If you want to know what James means, it means the, the guy that's the same as Jacob, which is uh, not a complimentary name. But it's one of our favorite names. Jacob, the of Zebedee, Zebedios, Zebedee. And Ioannis, Johannes, which almost all languages will do this. Johannes, Ioannis, Ioannis um, and Johann. You've heard of Johann as the German, Johann Sebastian Bach. Same thing in, in South Cor- in Korean. They say Johannes for John. We say John. English is a funny language. All right, John his brother. So that's some fun flavor for you. Philippos, Philip, and Bartholomai. Bartholomaios. Tomas Ah, Thomas, that's pretty close to how we say it in English. Thomas and Matthias, I've given you Matthew, Matthias, the tax collector. Matthew made sure you knew that he was a dirty, rotten scoundrel, according to his countrymen, and so rejected. To say this word, the tax collector means rejected, untouchable, sinful person, because a traitor. Like Vichy France, where the French would work for the German Nazis. And so the French nationalists hated the people that were collaborators with the Germans. That's how people thought in Judea of the Roman collaborators, like the tax collectors. And so Matthew, who writes the gospel to the Jewish Christian readership, the most Jewish of the gospels, is an untouchable among his people. Jacobus, we've had that name before. Your Bible says James, Jacob, but this is the Jacob of Alpha, Alphaio, Alpha, Alphaio, which is Alphaeus in your Bible. And this word doesn't occur in a lot of the translations, but I think it is in the King James. Um, there's, a trans, there's a transmissional argument, but I put it in because it's in the majority text. Labios is another name for the guy that's also called Thaddeus. Labios, who's also called Thaddeus. So these are the guy's names that are the 12. Simon ha Canonites. This is either the guy from Cana, which nobody really thinks that, or it's a zealot, which no one thinks that. I'm, I'm sorry, or, no, no, they think he's a zealot. He's not a Canaanite, and he's not from Cana. He's, this word is translated from the, from the Hebrew, um, and it has to do with being a, a, a zealot. It's a, it's a faction, and so he's been taken from the, this faction of zealots. And Judah, I, I translated Judas because Judas. Does everybody know this guy's name, Judas scary. It's the worst name. Nobody names their kid Judas. Right, we don't put the S on the end. But I've known several kids named Judah. That's all that name is. The name is he's named after the tribe that Jesus comes from, the tribe of Judah, where we get the name Jews. Judah, that's the name, and and but it's a specific one. It's Judas Iscariot who betrayed, also betrayed Jesus. I I did a little looking on this name Iscariot. Uh, We haven't got to talk about this before, but just very briefly, what is an Iscariot? Judas Iscariot. I thought for years that it must be that he's one of Issachar. He's from the tribe of Issachar. But there's a problem with that. First of all, nobody says that. That's always a hint that maybe you got uh, something that doesn't match. Um, it could be that nobody gets it, but I thought he was from Issachar. But this K should be a key. And so it's the wrong letter for the, for the, for the um, and that, that may indicate that I've got it wrong there. Um, there's a lot of interest in what this, this means. What is Iscariot? And, um, what's interesting is that whatever that word means, he is, uh, marked forever as the Judah that betrayed Jesus. And, um, uh, it, I don't believe it means that he was one of the Sicarii, one of the, one of the assassins. That's not, that's not what I think it means. But, uh, anyway, so I don't really have you a good answer on what Iscariot is, but, um, they want to be sure that you don't think it's the Judah of Genesis or any of the other good Judas, this is the bad Judah. And so we'll just call him Judas. All right, so that's the naming of the 12. And I want to say that you get these people's names because God is calling them to do this work. And this is, this is the principle that God uses us. He uses means. God can do everything by direct action. He's proven it again and again. He proved it this morning as, this, as the earth rotated and as we saw the sun rose. You know, God can do anything, He does it all by Himself. But he uses means, and that includes us. That includes these 12 men, including Judas. Do you know Judas had a purpose in Jesus uh, calling him and in God's arrangement? Judas' purpose involves getting Jesus to the cross. Judas is Gollum. Judas is the guy that, what are you doing? Why is he allowed to be this betrayer? Why Jesus, don't you know? And at one point in the story, before Judas betrays him, Jesus does know. We see that. He's the one. One of you is going to betray me. He prophetically identifies Judas. So why? Because God has a purpose for Judas, and it isn't that God makes Judas sin, and it doesn't mean that God opens Judas to Satan possession. But he is possessed by Satan. Satan enters Judas. It's that God has a plan. It in- involves Jesus dying for our sins on the cross, and one of the cogs in that wheel is going to be Judas doing what Judas wants to do, betraying Jesus for thirty pieces of silver, and then they come and arrest him, and he goes to this. kangaroo court trial, series of trials. And then he is crucified where he hangs between heaven and earth and dies for your sins and mine, screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me out of Psalm 22? God uses means. He uses you and me to accomplish his objectives. Do you know that? Are you comfortable with that? That's a major theme of the Bible on theology. God could do it, but he uses you. And it's great news because you have a purpose now. He wants you to do what he wants you to do. In verses five through six, you have the restriction of this mission to Israel. He restricts the mission to just the lost sheep, he says, of the house of Israel. These twelve, he Jesus sent after commanding them, saying, "Into the way of the Gentiles you may not go, and into a city of the Samaritans you may not enter. I don't want you to go to other than Jews, including the half-breeds that are untouchable rejects called Samaritans in that day. What was left of the northern kingdom, just to the southern kingdom, remnant the the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But rather, I want you to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the that's the mission." That's the mission. And today, we continue to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel with the message of the gospel and offer them another shot at their Messiah. And that's a lot of what you have in the book of Acts. We still advance and evangelize the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but our mission is international. It isn't restricted to Israel, it is to all the peoples of the earth. And so that's a major difference. But think about the fact that God restricted it. He had a purpose. He had a plan. He did this for a reason. And I have a principle here. Number three, as the Lord of the harvest, God reserves the right to restrict the scope of the work he wants us to do. He can say, this is the group you're going to go to. This is the open door. You can walk through it or not. This is the mission. And I don't propose to know what the restrictions are unless he tells me. Or unless by circumstances, as Paul says in one place in, in, um, in his letters, he says, I was prevented by the Spirit from entering Asia. Sometimes God closes doors and you can't, you, can't, you can't do anything. Sometimes you get stuck in prison, you have to write letters. Thank God. Paul was in prison, so we have the letter of Philippians, right? We, we, don't, we don't know how God is restricting or what the restriction is necessarily, but when it's there, it's okay. He's the Lord of the harvest, and that gives us great comfort because I could get really anxious about whether or not we're doing the work here. Couldn't you? Do you want to waste your life? Right? But no, relax. Because the Lord of the harvest has work. And we need to ask him, as we read in the end of chapter 9, will you send workers into your harvest? He gets to, rest- to restrict the scope of the work he wants to do. And that is encouraging to me. I hope it encourages you. In verses 7 through 8, the next piece after the restriction of the mission... Is the summary of the ministry. You have the words and the works of the kingdom. They're going to say the words, they're going to do the works that offer the kingdom. Remember, the kingdom means that there's a miraculous supernatural presence of the king, the removal of the curse, the incarceration of the demons, and perfect environment is offered throughout the prophets in the coming kingdom. And so we're raising the dead and Cleansing the lepers and so forth. The words and works of the kingdom. He said, now as you go, this is in quotes. This is Jesus speaking. As you go, proclaim Caruso. The great Caruso was a famous um, uh, opera tenor. Caruso is the word. I don't know if it related to that uh, Italian name. Maybe the Italians could help me with this. But uh, Caruso is the word for preach or proclaim. And it's something about the way you say it it's not just that you're teaching. It's that perhaps by the teaching, you're making a proclamation. I have a son. I'm not going to tell you which one, that everything he says is a proclamation. And it's because of the din and the constant background noise of all these monkey um, boys that we have in the house. And so he has to proclaim to be heard. And I, I take it as training. I don't know what the Lord is going to do. Caruso. As you go proclaim, or you could translate that preach. Preach has a lot of baggage now. Oh, I'm done if you're going to say preach. It is to proclaim, saying that it has engizomai. It has come near the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is near. You're proclaiming that, meaning Jesus is here. The king is present. There is no kingdom without the king. Remember that. The sick, I'll give you an order in the text. He says, the sick Heal. The leper, or sorry, the the dead raised. It doesn't happen in the majority, but in many different manuscripts from different places, you have the raise the dead. The lepers cleanse. Demons, throw them out. Ek Do you know what what balo is? That's one of my favorite Greek words. Balo means to throw. So you throw the balo. It's very easy to remember that. Ek is to throw out. And that's the language when you read cast out a demon, cast out. He's just saying throw them out. That's, it's, it's much, it's not restricted technical language. How is he casting out? He's throwing them out. That's the language. I like that better. Cast out. Freely, that's Doreon. It's an adverb. Freely as a gift really gets the sense of what this word means. Freely as a gift. Uh, There's a noun related that is a gift. Freely as a gift you received. Freely as a gift give. And I should put this in red. Give as a command. Give. So this is the summary of the works that go with the message. Now, verse 7, notice you had the proclamation. The kingdom is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what you're supposed to say. These are the works that go with that message. These are the works that go with that message. What goes with the gospel today? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. All the things that God does when you first trust in Christ the eventual resurrection to eternal life, then this body being resurrected to rule with Christ forever, and a body not corrupted by sin, which is capable of inheriting eternity. That's a miracle. It's the big one. And all these other things really pale in comparison to what the gospel secures. Greater works than these you will do, Jesus said. And I think it has to do with our mission. All right, I have a principle. Principle number four, our words and works on behalf of the gospel are God's gift to us and through us. You got the message of the gospel that you received. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You got that message as a grace gift from God and you were already a beneficiary of it before you ever need to turn it around and give that to someone else. Freely you received, freely give. The gospel is free and you are already Flush, a lavish beneficiary of that grace gift. And so the principle obtains. We freely advance. We freely give. We talked first hour about giving, about the biblical doctrine of giving in the church age. And we didn't talk about tithing because that's not. Part of the biblical doctrine of giving in the church age you don't give a percentage according to the new testament you give cheerfully what your heart uh, what cheers your heart to give what you purpose in your heart so give uh without feeling uh, under compulsion or obligation The giving that we have in the church age is a different proposition than the tithing income tax system that God set up under Israel. And so just understand, we do give and we give with the attitude that God teaches, for example, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, but but we give because we've received and that's giving to God who's already given to us. We talked about this principle of reciprocation. That is how the gospel advances. It is not ever for sale. You cannot sell the gospel. We must never sell the gospel. We must never be capable of being accused of coming close to a shade of as if we were selling the gospel because if someone thinks they can buy, then they won't believe. And that's the Reformation. That's what Jesus is dealing with in Israel as well. Our words and works on behalf of the gospel are God's gift we've already received. And he parlays that through us as we share with others. And so you have a very freely you received, freely you gave is a very helpful summary of our attitude and the work God has called us to do, which I'm borrowing from Matthew 28 to talk about that when I talk about what he's doing with this commission for this specific work. In verses 9 through 10, the question of support is addressed regarding their food. What will we eat for our journey? When you're going on a trip, you got to go hit the snacks. You got to get snacks. You got to get it all set up and you got to prepare in advance. And Jesus says something that might shock you. Jesus is all about counting the cost and see how much it's going to cost to build the tower. And don't be foolish. Don't be foolish see how much it's going to cost to raise an army to fight the war and not get beaten. Jesus loves planning, but here he says, the plan is, I've got you. My father has you. Your food is going to be from him. He says, do not acquire gold or silver, crusos, or Argoros. Don't acquire gold or silver or copper uh, for your money belts. That's the command. Do not get You don't need to get money together to go on this trip. Now, the principle is not, therefore, when missionaries uh, go to the field, they shouldn't raise support. It's that you don't need to go find your own resources to do this work. God is going to provide the resources. Not a traveler's bag, this word peron, not a traveler's bag for the road, nor two ketonas, that's two coats, duo, that's two, coats, nor sandals, nor a staff. You don't have to go get extra stuff for this trip because the principle for the worker is worthy of his trophies, which is best rendered food or nourishment. And you could say, okay, this is the ox gets, you know, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. He's, he's worthy of his wages, So the idea is the support that you need to do the work is in the work itself and go do the work. Don't go try to do that. And so that is a faith challenge for all of us. That's a hard thing. Um, And uh, be careful about applying this because this is not telling you today to just go and let it go and just expect people to feed you. Paul will later say, if you're not willing to eat, Or sorry, if you're not willing to work, you're not not allowed to eat either, uh, at least from the coffers of of the church family. So the fifth principle I want to pull out of this is the worker is worthy of his food means he covers our needs while we're on mission. That's the big nugget that you pull out of this that's universal throughout the Bible. He covers your needs while you're on mission. That's the same principle as seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things of material support will be added to you. And you want to think this way, but I'm a tent maker. He's covering your needs and how you're building tents. Whatever you're doing, that is your support. Remember, God is the one providing the support. And it's wonderful. It's way better than insurance policy or a, or a, a, a rainy day fund or money in the bank in case we have trouble. It's way better than that, that just God has you. But notice that it's in this context, if you're doing the work, it's for those that are on mission. And um, what's the mission? Well, we better pay attention. In this case, they're supposed to go preach and heal and raise the sick and raise the dead and all that. What we're doing is a little different mission if you read in Matthew 28. We're making disciples of the nations. Are you on mission? Are you someone that this applies to? Can you say God is on the hook for my my support because I'm seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness? Beloved, please don't think that means that you're a preacher. Please don't think that means that you're a vocational minister. What I'm talking about is universal for all believers. Is God the one supplying your needs, or are you still doing it? Well, I mean, do you mean leave work? No, I mean go to work knowing that God supplies your needs. Do your work for Him. He's your boss, and recognize it. I don't know if it's that way, but it is that way, whether you know it or not. So you might as well live that way. All right, in verses 11 through 15, we have a pretty long chunk, uh, uh, five verses, where support is now going to be where they live, where they lodge when they go on the mission. So they know we don't have to pack. But I guess I better load up on the word because we're not going to pack stuff. And now I don't even have to have price line on the hook to figure out where I'm going to stay while I'm there. I don't even need to, to arrange for housing. I'm going to go and housing is going to be part of the mission. And that's a really interesting thing. in this delegated ministry Jesus gives the disciples there in the um, first century. Into whichever city or village you enter, inquire in it who is axios, who is worthy. Who are you supposed to ask? This is interesting. Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. You're supposed to ask the kind of the consensus who's a good person, who's worthy. Notice what that does. That immediately uh, lets you begin to associate in your ministry with people of moral quality and respect of the community. You're already uh, <laughs> you're already concerned with the portrayal of the gospel and your associates. It's an interesting thought. They get a shot. If they're considered worthy, they get a shot at supporting the mission. But maybe they direct you to somebody that's not worthy because the town isn't. There's an answer for that. So this is is a really neat thought if you think how Jesus set them up to do this. Inquire who in it is worthy and there remain until you depart. And my Bible adds that city. So you stay until you leave. Well, you stay in the house until you leave that city. So you're not going to go to multiple houses. You're not going to get multiple accounts of support going that don't know each other. I've seen this where somebody in a, in a needful situation, a needy situation will uh, get someone helping over here and then make sure nobody knows, but they'll come over here and get some help going over here. And they can't ever talk to each other because they'll like, they'll cross level and the support will be less. So to get the most out of people, I've got to keep these little secret accounts. And the missionaries encounter this a lot. And it's just, it's, it's not restricted to any culture, but it, it is a problem. Jesus says, we're not doing that. You go to one place, you stay there. You make that association. This plants a church, by the way. <laughs> this sort of begins to plant, if they receive the message of Christ, then they become followers of Christ. And when Jesus dies for our sins... They receive the Holy Spirit, and these households will begin to be the remnant of what's left of Israel within the church. Inquire who in it is worthy, there remain till you depart. Now, as you enter into the house, greet it. And that means you say the greeting that was popular, that was very common when you go to a house. Bless this house, may God bless this house. You say a blessing of peace, shalom. And if on the one hand, men, in on the one hand, the house is worthy, it must come, third person imperative, your peace upon it. You have to say "Be peace upon it if it's worthy. If the house is worthy, that the town. Now notice, the town people already told me that's worthy. I go and determine that it is worthy, trust but verify, and then I, bl- I give my blessing of peace. But if, on the other hand, the one they recommended is not worthy, your peace, third person imperative, it must be returned to you. So the blessing. Remember when Jacob blesses... Um, I'm sorry. When Isaac blesses Jacob and not Esau, Esau comes back later with the real smell, with the real food, right? And says, "Dad, don't you have a blessing for me?" And Jacob says, "I'm uh, sorry." Uh, Isaac says, "I'm sorry, son. I don't have any more blessings. I gave the blessing to your brother. I can't undo the blessing." So this is there's something that's considered like a concrete thing, even though it's just a pronouncement. God, God's peace on this house. And if it's not a peaceable place or if it's not a worthy place, it doesn't comport, then you remove the, the, the peace on the house. Well, why is that judgment being made? Because you're representing the kingdom and the judge, the king, is offering this kingdom. And when the kingdom is being rejected, you render that judgment. So you don't pronounce your peace. Your pronouncement of peace must be returned. So he's telling them they're coming for support to these homes They're going to stay there and therefore benefit from the hospitality. That's another thing. First century Judea, if you're going around to houses and you go stay there, I mean, the ancient Near East and even today's modern Near East, if you are in someone's home, you are treated as the highest ranking family member for hospitality. So the idea is if you go in their home, they're going to provide for you. This is how you get your support. And so the idea is that you have worthy or unworthy and in receiving care and receiving support there's also the judgment that they're making on worthy or unworthy it's a very interesting thought about how Jesus is sending them as his representatives and um and I, I love the fact that you have the first um the first witness to the people is uh, who's worthy here oh go over to Bob's house so go to Bob's house and then we verify, oh, that's not a worthy house. That puts a condemnation on the whole place because the, the person they elected to say it was worthy is unworthy. So they're, by that aggregate, it's an unworthy place and you're gonna see that in a moment. Whoever should not welcome you nor hear your words, decomi to welcome, receive with open arms or hear your words coming out, of that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. This is a very Jewish thing to do among Gentiles. You don't want to be corrupted by the corruption that they are corrupted with. And so symbolically, you will dust off your sandals. I don't have anything to do with the corruption involved in that place. That's the idea. And if you're saying that as a Jew toward Jews, if you're saying you're a Gentile to me, that's a really culturally significant thing they're doing there with the... Uh, rejection of the words. Now, notice the standard of worthiness is welcoming the ones Jesus sent as though from him. And again, in the time which we're speaking, uh, when when a messenger would come from a dignitary, the messenger would be treated like the dignitary as as the representative of that person. If they're treating you badly instead of treating you like the king is sending his emissaries, then you Uh, you know you've got a rejection. If they reject your words, you know you have this rejection. And that is the standard of worthiness. Do you receive Christ and his word? It's really clear, isn't it? Do you receive Christ and his word or are you unworthy? And what will Paul say later since you have considered yourself unworthy of eternal life? We're going to the Gentiles. Verse 15, truly, I'm telling you, amen, lego, who mean? That's amen is where we get the the word. We say amen, amen. It's Aramaic from the Hebrew to uh, be trustworthy or to believe or to be faithful statement. I'm telling you, it is more, it will be more bearable, more bearable it will be in the land or earth, in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than the cities, than that city, than for that city. It would be more bearable for the land of Sodom, Gomorrah, in the day of judgment. That's an interesting statement he makes. Does this mean the whole city standing up in the great white throne judgment and being judged? It could mean that. It could be eschatological. And this kind of takes us to the kingdom that is offered. That's today, y'all, that's after the tribulation. After these events, um, uh, there were, there, we, we know the timeline from the Old Testament a little bit. And so, It may be that he's talking about the great white throne judgment. It could also be that what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah is nothing compared to what's happening in the lake of fire. The physical destruction with fire and brimstone from heaven, God's uh, uh, disaster from Genesis 18 is nothing compared to what happens at the... Great White Throne Judgment. And let's talk about that for a minute. At the end of history, at the end of the millennial kingdom, there will be a revolution led by Satan. He gets freed. He leads another revolution of humans against God. And then God stamps it down and then begins what's called the Great White Throne Judgment. And the books are opened and people are judged for their works. And if your name isn't written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then you are judged by your works. And you don't want to be at this judgment because everybody in that judgment doesn't rise to the level of God's righteousness and their works do not accomplish the righteousness of God. And so they are thrown with Satan and his fallen angels into the lake of fire. That's called the great white throne judgment. And that may well be the judgment that he is talking about. I th- I'm sorry. I believe that's the judgment he's talking about for those who are rejecting uh, the, the king's emissaries as he's offering the kingdom. And uh, boy, I don't want to be that. I've got a sixth principle for you. God uses the worthy to support the ministry of the gospel. Pretty much. He uses the worthy. I want to be worthy. Well, what does that look like? Well, one thing is to receive God's word and, uh, and to receive the, the Son, to receive the Savior, and to be worthy in the sense that you're in alignment with God and His self-disclosure. He uses worthy people to support the ministry of the gospel. And, um, and so I, I don't have a category for those that don't support the ministry of the gospel that could be considered worthy. So that'd be unworthy. And I want to be worthy. So I just, I think that um, it's interesting that he says whoever's worthy there. It's kind of a, a, a thought to toy with a little bit. In verses 16 through 23, we have a long section where you have the promise of guaranteed persecution, but also promise of empowerment in this ministry. We're, we're winding down we're rapidly. I'm, the faster I talk, the, the, the longer the hour is getting. Persecution, empowerment for the ministry. In verse 16, behold, he says, I'm sending you like sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, thanks, Lord. But that's the deal. He's, he's here as a sheep among wolves. I wish it were different. Can't we be wolf-killing lions? Let's do that, Lord. That's not the deal. Remember the compassion the shepherd has for, the, for those without a shepherd. That's that compassion for those that are going to kill him. And so that's what we talked about last time. I'm sending you like sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Sheaves, wolves, serpents, doves. I'm sure there's going to be a good country song in there somewhere. All right? All these animal references. The sheep are helpless. The wolves eat the sheep. The serpents uh, know uh, to avoid the, the fight. They do their best to avoid the fight. And they only bite when they have to. And the doves, they didn't do nothing. <laughs> All right. So you want to avoid what you can. You want to be very mindful. You know, serpents, snakes are feeling the ground all the time. The, the vibrations of the ground tell them a lot of times uh, if there's a threat. And one reason you won't see a lot of snakes if you're out and about. Now, if you're a hiker, you've seen snakes, but you know it's rare. It's not every hike you see a snake. And if, it, if, it, if you see one, it's like only, only one. But there were 30 or 40 around. But they, but they feel vibrations in their bodies. And so they know, well, let's get out of here. Or they're asleep in the sun and they, they don't. You know, it doesn't wake them up. Ever sleep through your alarm? So, so the the idea is to, I think, avoid the conflict as you can. Um, and he's going to get into that in a moment. Furthermore, beware of men. What a great piece of advice! I don't just mean ladies to men. I mean mankind. And the reason you have to beware of men is they're sinful and broken, and they can convince themselves. You and I can convince ourselves of almost anything. And this is how villainy happens. You know where villains come from? Villains come from bad ideas that we tell ourselves and believe and then act on. Nobody who's the bad guy thinks he's the bad guy. Hitler thought he was a pretty good dude. And yet, well, that's a great example of a villain. He's a bad guy. But he didn't think he was a bad guy. He was just having his struggle. He just had to bring himself to, to have to accept that the problem is the Jews and they must go. He's just being a good guy but see, he's the great villain. That's how villainy works. The villain never thinks he's the villain. And this is what I mean. People are dangerous. And these people are going to say, for God's sake, we're going to stone you when the only person speaking for God is the person being stoned. So you have to beware for they will hand you over to the courts and in their synagogues, they'll scourge you. Paul says this happened to him more than one occasion. There was a rule in Israel. You can't give 40 lashes. So they were good at giving 39. Paul's back was probably mostly scar tissue by the time he writes 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. Mostly scar tissue from being laid open in the synagogues. And upon, or before, sorry, governors, and even kings, there's a Kai, dekai, and even kings, you will be led for my sake. And this is the place where I think this is being expanded from just the near term that he's going to speak to, to the entirety of the offer of the kingdom. There's coming a Jewish 144,000 witnesses from all 12 tribes of Israel that are going to offer the kingdom again, and they're going to do it throughout all the nations and, and there is a massive suffering for those people who will um, do that in the tribulation period. And this is the problem of prophecy, is sometimes the hills uh, are not, you don't see the side view. you you, see, you see it um, the hilltops. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. For a witness to them and to the nations are the Gentiles, the ethne is the Gentiles. So you're going to go in front of the kings and governors. Now, we don't have a record of this happening in the Gospels, in the short-term ministry when they're offering the kingdom. But Paul goes before the Gentile kings in Acts. And we have been doing this since. And we are enjoying, enduring, suffering through our tribulation now and have been going on 2,000 years. And in America, it's a bubble. We've really enjoyed freedom and peace and security and the writ of habeas corpus and the freedom to assemble and all the things. But it hasn't been the norm through church history. Principle number seven is the gospel ministry to which we're all called will involve persecution. The gospel ministry will involve persecution. Get familiar with Vermbrand and the voice of the martyrs. Think about what it's like to be a Christian outside of these lands in the places where Christianity doesn't have a foothold or hasn't had a foothold in a long time. Think about being a Christian in the Muslim lands. And, um, and so we're going to suffer to represent Jesus Christ. A lot of times when you tell a young person that, they start thinking of ways to avoid the suffering. We're going to not tell. I'll just represent Jesus quietly, but I won't be public about it. And so when they ask me, I'll tell them, no, I don't believe in Jesus like Peter did around the fire, but I really will believe in Jesus. I'll just be faking them out. Here's the problem. Your purpose is to bear this witness in front of the kings. You, you're supposed to say Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I don't have to give you an answer concerning this. And God may let us die. He may save us. I don't know. But I'm not going to bow down. You have to testify. When I say you have to testify, you might say, well, will I go to hell if I don't testify? And that was a crisis in the early church to figure out uh, who had lapsed and who hadn't and who goes to heaven. You're not saved by your faithfulness. You're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But listen, you have a mission. And when it comes time for you to say, like the kid at Columbine said, yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to say it. You need to be ready to say it. And that's what we're being equipped for in this part of Matthew 10. In verse 19, but when they hand you over to be be examined by these judges, by these kings, don't worry how or what you should say. Go figure. Jesus tells us not to worry. He's always saying that. Why are you afraid? Why are you worried? Trust me. There's one or the other. Don't worry about how or what you should say for it will be given to you in that very hour what you'll say. It'll be given. It'll be given. Passive future. It will be given, did I mean? To you in that very hour what you'll say. That's awesome. Okay, so I just have to be faithful. I just have to trust you. I just have to be present. I have to be willing. And he's going to give them what they need to say. Okay. Stephen is empowered by the spirit to say what he said. Paul is empowered by the spirit to do Mars Hill and the other times that he's in front of people with this message in front of Felix and Festus. For you will not be the one speaking literally, for you not will be the speakers, those who are speaking. Well, what am I I mean, am I going to speak? It'll be your voice. You'll be saying it, you'll be meaning to say it, but it'll be God working in you. He says, but the spirit of the father of you, the spirit of your father will be speaking in or through you. We need the Holy Spirit for this. See, this expands. What he's doing is sort of expanding to the entirety of the confession of Christ to reveal the father. This takes us back to principle number one, which we had before, doesn't it? God gives us what you need to accomplish what uh, He wants you to do. If He has something for you to do, He's going to equip you to do it. God, I'm scared. I don't know what to say. Don't worry. He's with you. Trust Him. If He wants you to speak for Him, He'll set you up to speak for Him. It's a beautiful thought. It's also a fearful thought. And it's easy to say. But when it comes time for us to do this under pressure that'll be the test. Are you ready? I'm glad I'm able to say that to you here in peace and comfort. I mean, relative comfort sitting in those chairs. Maybe it's going to be your call that you have to say it. And maybe you're Stephen and you die for it. And instead of serving God, Over a long lifetime of day-by-day service, you give it all in one day, one afternoon. I gave my entire life that way instead of over the entirety of a long life, maybe. But however you go, you go out for him. Long or short, you do it for him, and he equips you. But a brother will hand over a brother unto death, and a father a child, and they will rise up children against parents, and they will kill them. And this sounds a lot like the kind of things that happened in the communist revolutions in the 20th century. These kinds of things actually took place. I'm not saying Jesus is prophesying the 20th century here. I'm saying we saw this under the guise of godlessness and utopia with the communist revolutions. Parents being handed over by their children and then killed. This is a horrible thing. The tendency today of children to cut off their parents as adults is this like kind of unspoken epidemic in the culture? It's very common. Parents become inconvenient to the adult children, and the adult children cut off the parents and fail to honor their father and mother as the scriptures say. It doesn't say you have to obey them as adults, but you're supposed to honor them. And in some cases, yes, you have to because of criminal or abuse or something, but I'm talking about this this snowflake tendency that you became inconvenient because you hurt my feelings so I can never talk to you again. And that's, that, that's something we all experience. The, the, New Te- the Old Testament ends with a prophecy that Messiah will restore the hearts of sons to their fathers and fathers to sons. We know about generational trouble between families, but this, well, this is the, 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 the disintegration of everything. You'll be hated by all on account of my name, but he who perseveres unto the end, of the tribulation, of this time of suffering, will be saved. This is not the one verse in the Bible to tell you that if you don't say yes all the way, you're not really saved. This is the place of the Bible to say that there is an end point and you will be delivered eventually as you uh, persevere, and it is going to be a slog. This is a portrayal of at least our trials and tribulations in the church and also what's going to happen for the witnesses for Christ in the tribulation period. But when they persecute you in this city, flee to the other one. So I'm not supposed to stand and fight. I'm supposed to give ground. Run. Yeah, run. Live to fight another day. They let Paul down in, the, uh, in a basket in his first missionary journey. Whatever it takes. We're not, we're not trying to, to take our stand. But once they've got us, they've got us. But if you don't have me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to split. Peter's uh, let out in Acts uh, from, from prison by the angel. Springs him from prison. Okay. And, and so you go when you can. For truly, I'm saying to you, you will not be able to finish the cities of Israel. Literally, you won't be able to finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So there's plenty of fire to start. And just because it's, you know, it's not going well in this town, keep going. Because there's lots of work to do, seems to be the picture. And that's a struggle I have. And I think the Son of Man coming is, is ultimately a reference to the second coming of Jesus relieving everyone's trouble, which we just read about in uh, Revelation 19. Principle number eight is that the intense persecution is often the context where we get to do God's work. It will be often an intense persecution. When you're facing intense persecution, maybe you'll remember this passage. Maybe you remember this discussion. It's a good thought experiment for us to do from our ease. We're about to go have a potluck. We're going to have, have a meal together. And even some people can come upstairs. We could get some space. It's a sunny day still. And so you can go be outside. We're we're in comfort and ease. But it's not the norm in church history. Intense persecution is the context. And next time, we will cover the rest of Matthew chapter 10. We'll finish this discourse. I was hoping to apply this much to you, with you today, but I think we've got eight good principles that we can build from. And uh, hopefully these things will equip you as we've applied all the way through to think about how you can be about God's work even under adverse circumstances. Our Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word and the awesome privilege to share Christ with those around us. Father, we want to be sure to say the words of life to those who are in the hearing of my voice. And ask that you'd open the hearts of any who don't know Christ to understand that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead so that they could have eternal life. Because otherwise, we're all guilty in our sins and dead and lost and separated from you and in desperate need of a Savior. Father, the, the truth about the Christians is that you're the good. We are not the good people. We are the sinners who have been saved by grace. You are the righteous and holy one. And help us remember that. And be humble as we share this message of your love and your life with those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.